0: That's a growler. Welcome back to Beauty and the Beastly Minute, the podcast where we break down and analyze Beauty and the Beast one grand finale at a time. I'm Bobby and I'm Janae and with us today we are very excited to announce we have Tony Bancroft. Hey
1: guys how you doing it's glad I'm so glad to be here I think what you guys are doing is awesome because I'm a particular fan of Beauty and the Beast having worked on it (laughs) so it's awesome to be here with you guys.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, in case you don't know much about Tony, he was an animator for for Disney. He worked on Cogsworth, Yago, Puma, Kronk. He directed Mulan, and I'm sure a lot of other uh, a lot of other projects and parts that you worked on in your time during Disney.
1: And I visited the commissary every day. That's, <laughs> that's that, that was lunch. We called it lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and... uh... Oh, was I supposed to chime in there with a little more detail? No, no, you're Uh, (laughs) not. That's all I had. Lunch lunch was it. That's as funny as it got. (laughs) Was I supposed to say beef
0: stroganoff? That's my favorite. Okay.
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess I wanted to start off asking you a question because we don't really know basically anything about animation, um, besides just that we love it. (laughs) What? Oh,
1: okay. Well, at least you you know the important thing, which is it must be loved and cherished. Yes.
0: So I wanted to ask you kind of starting off, how does it work with animation? Because there are multiple people working on each character. So, like, you worked on Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast. What did you work on him throughout the whole movie or, or specific parts of it how did that work?
1: That's a very good question actually. Um and uh, it's one that has changed over the years too cuz the system has changed with CG animation but back in the old days that we're talking about had <laughs> working on Beauty and the Beast and and these movies in the 90s um which was really just kind of an exciting time where we just never knew, you know, what was going to be successful and where things were going to go and Beauty and the Beast was definitely one of those movies that um for all the crew that was working on it we loved it but we really did not expect for it to have the kind of staying power that it's had over the years and and appeal but to answer your question specifically yes i was assigned all the animators are assigned by the directors to a particular character and at that time we were doing that it was the character system meaning um you were put into a unit that was a supervising animator and then and then kind of uh, follow up animators underneath him that And the supervisor would kind of cast out all the scenes of that character to his team. So I was uh, under Will Finn, who was my supervising animator of Cogsworth. He created the final model sheets and the, the look of the character. And then I followed him up, and there was another animator named Mike Show. And I think it was just the two of us. There was a couple animators that did one or two scenes of Cogsworth here and there. And there was a couple times that I animated some of the other object characters too, but only if they were like small and in the same scene as Cogsworth and Cogsworth was kind of driving the scene, meaning he had the dialogue or the main action. Then I would also animate Mrs. Potts or Lumiere if they were just kind of secondarily staring at Cogsworth or or (laughs) blinking, you know, softly in the background. But yeah, we, um, because it was the unit system like that, um, We would share scenes so that if, uh, for the most part, if I did Cogsworth, um, I was either working with Nick Rennari who was doing Lumiere, or Mike Suri who was in the Lumiere um, crew, or something like that. And we would we would literally uh, pass off the scene if whoever was driving the scene would go first, and and that was determined usually by the director saying, "Oh yeah, you know, because Cogsworth is kind of starting the scene," and He's saying most of the dialogue, so Tony, you go first, and then you can hand it off to Mike. And But we would plan it together. We, I would literally thumbnail out, meaning like make little small sketches of the acting that I wanted and the choices that I have based on listening to the dialogue and getting notes from the directors. And then once that was kind of approved, I would hand it off to Mike or whoever was doing uh, Lumiere. They would do um, their planning, and we would kind of go back and forth. And it was like that for the whole movie. So some shots you could have three or four animators touching that one scene, that one shot. It's a a bit slower way to go, but you get better consistency and that's why we did it that way. And it was something that was established during Walt Disney's time back in the old days, you know, the old, old days. So (laughs) it was something that we we did for all those movies in the nineties. We you know, we were assigned to characters and we became specialists and as an actor with a pencil, in this case, um, it's a great way to get familiar with the character, to really engross yourself in it. And since we're actually drawing, we're not—you know—they're not CG models that always look the same. Doesn't matter who touches them. You want to kind of get into drawing that character, understanding it inside and out, and that just takes time. You got to just constantly be immersed in that character. So to do the unit system like we did was uh, very helpful for consistency and the quality of the overall picture.
2: Do you prefer Mm -hmm. that method as opposed to, I mean, I guess I don't know what the other newer method would be, but is that your preferred way of working?
1: Yeah, I think it's great because I think it accentuates the fact that animators are actors. Mm -hmm. You know, we are assigned to a character. We get to know that character inside and out. And we put ourselves into that character. It it sounds corny, but you've heard the, like the nine old man say that, you know, you got to imbue yourself into the character and pour yourself into that character. And it's, but it's true. And, And the unit system offers that, but today's system because of cg animation being a little bit more complex technically and the fact that you don't have to draw the characters they're already you have a model and they're always consistently that model and that look you can have one animator animate the whole shot and that's so that's how it is now is that an animator will be assigned a shot he might not get the next shot or the shot before he might not even have he might be just doing that one shot and he has to do all the characters all the elements that are in Mm. that shot
2: sounds overwhelming (laughs)
1: It can be and but also more than that I just you know, I think of like Big Hero Six, which was a Disney movie that came out recently. Some of those shots had five characters, they all have very unique personalities and to give a shot like that to one person and expect them to kind of nail each personality type mm-hmm. that's a big request and it's a big job. I just think that you get inconsistencies because of that. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll never know, I mean, because obviously we're not going to redo Big Hero 6 with the unit system (laughs) and test that out. What? We're not? (laughs) No, I don't think Disney's going to do that anytime soon. Uh, But, you know, hey, it's working for him. Who am I to knock it?
2: Right. Wow, that's so cool.
0: I think that's definitely something that we've noticed as we've gone through uh, these minutes One minute at a time talking about them for like half an hour um, is that you get to see a lot of the character, the character of the character played out through the animation. It's not just, you know, what they're saying, but how they move and and how they look around and know their expressions. Yeah. And so that's something that that we've seen a lot is you get their personality from how they're animated.
2: I think that is one of the things that has impressed both Bobby and I the most as we've been like watching one minute at a time. Mm -hmm. Like... We're both just like, oh, my gosh, this animation. Oh, my gosh, do you see that person's face? Did you see that? Like, there are just so many things we never even noticed that are incredible about the animation that we're like, what the?
1: Well, I think that's what's cool about this podcast is that you guys are dissecting it down to the minutiae and you're really getting a chance to study it in... And the kind of minutia that it, it was never intended to be studied that <laughs> way. <laughs> You've probably seen a lot of flaws. I could point, I could point out flaws if you want to talk about flaws. Um, <laughs> and don't get me started. I mean, cause I, I have a lot of opinions actually on. Uh, Beauty and the Beast uh, having been I was a young junior animator work like I said earlier working under Will Finn this is my first time I actually got promoted to animator full-fledged animator on this film during like midway through so I started out as what was called an animating assistant which was like kind of the the beginning junior animator rank and and that meant that I got uh, whatever Will gave me I got like booger, what we call boogermation. I would get like uh, <laughs> Lumiere Cogsworth and, and, uh, and, uh, Mrs. Potts running after the beast and they're like as small as a booger, you know, uh. um, <laughs> really tiny going, no, master, master, no, uh, don't yeah. go up the, the stairs or, you know, as he's yeah. going running up to Bell's, you know, to pound on undel- door. I remember Bell's that door. minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was the guy that did those little, so that's how I started, but then halfway through the picture or maybe, maybe in the first third of the picture, I applied to be a full-fledged animator. I was on this program where every six months they would review my work and so I got reviewed and promoted to full-fledged animator. So this is my first credit as a full animator but still working under Will Finn and I went on to work under Will Finn on the next movie Aladdin also doing Yago the Parrot and exponentially the kind the quality of the scenes that I was given changed once I became an animator where I actually started to get some like close-up dialogue scenes of the character. And in this particular sequence that we're talking about today, uh, minute 40 of uh, Be Our Guest, I don't have any shots in, <laughs> in, this,
2: <laughs> in this
1: minute. Um, of course. <laughs> but I did actually in the last minute, in minute 39, I guess it was, there's the jello scene where Cogsworth falls into the jello as Lumiere in the background, which was animated by Nick Ranieri is going most days we just play around the castle <laughs> Blabby fat and lazy. You walked in and Oops and Daisy. Yeah. And and uh I did the foreground um Cogsworth that was in the jello and just a little side background story uh that I like to tell because it's it it's my anniversary today. I've been married twenty seven years. <gasps> And congratulations. congratulations! I got married <laughs> uh, um, right after Beauty and the Beast started, so I was a newlywed at the time. I was working on Beauty and the Beast; it was that long ago. And I was—we um, were at home. We had—we didn't have kids yet or anything. And I knew I had this Jello scene. And I was like, Oh my gosh, honey. I'm just, I'm nervous about it. Cause it's, there's a lot of technical aspects. You know, there's got, you know, Cogsworth right when it cuts to the scene, Cogsworth has just hit the jello. So the jello is reacting to him. Just mm-hmm. having slammed into it, and then at some point the inertia changes so that when he starts moving, the jello is reacting to him instead of him reacting to the jello. Uh-huh. So there was all these kind of um, dynamics going on. And I'm not an effects animator at all; just a character animator. Usually, somebody else, another team, comes through the effects animators, and then they they did the final jello. But I knew that because I was going first I had to really rough out the jello and have an understanding of its movement otherwise I would never be able to animate Cogsworth. Mm-hmm. Now now with digital uh, technology today you could actually animate Cogsworth in place and they would just like frame by frame place him to respond to the jello and you would never have to know what the jello was doing that could be done later now but at the time it was like I had to figure out the jello. So I asked my wife my my then new wife can you make me some jello? I'm gonna take it to work. So she made me, she made me some green jello, and I actually took it to work. And we had these down shooters, um, and I actually dropped the jello, like just physically dropped it under the camera and recorded it a couple times, and then went back frame by frame just to study. How the jello undulated and moved and came to a settle and all that kind of stuff. And then I started work on the scene. So that was my research was actually, and I had to do it fast because there was, there was lights on this uh, camera that were like melting the jello oh very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm like, <laughs> gotta get this take right, you know, and it would affect the look of the jello too. If it's more liquidy, it's going right. to move different than if it's solid. So uh, yeah. I have very fond memories when it comes to that scene. It was kind of the first one that I think I just became an animator when I did that scene, too. And then the other two shots that I have in Be Our Guest are I did the salt shakers. And this oh, I is love I was, that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's a shot where... Like the actual where,
2: salt shakers?
1: Yeah, the actual... Oh, I love just, those. Just the salt shakers <laughs> in that scene. So, yeah, when they're going...
2: That's the opening shot of minute 39.
1: Okay. Okay. Sure. It, yeah. Everything happened in 39. Um, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah. I just did those salt shakers and then Will Finn did the Cogsworth. Did the camera pans down to, to pick up Cogsworth and it's like it's snowing on him. But that was Will Finn that did the Cogsworth there. And then I did the beer steins, which I don't know where they are. But they're singing beer steins that are on the sides. The all imp- um, On the
2: sides or the all imperfect taste that you can... They're,
1: not that one. Yeah, that one. just the ones on the sides that are going... It's a bigger shot. There's other elements in it. Uh, yeah. I'm forgetting where it's at, but I did those beer steins early on as an animating assistant. Fun. And that's that was my... Those three shots were what I contributed to this uh, song sequence, Be Our Guess. Which, can can I give another aside real quick? A production yes. aside? This was, Be Our Guest was the very first sequence put into production on Beauty and the Beast. A lot of people don't know that. And a lot of people do know, and I know you guys have talked about this. It was originally uh, a song where they were serving Maurice, the father. Mm -hmm. And then later on when we had, we were looking at the animatics and we were looking at screenings, the directors decided it would be so much better if it was moved up in the story and they were serving Belle instead of Maurice. Totally makes sense now in in uh, in hindsight, but at the time it was like what they're moving be be our guest to a different part of the and we were like a second guy- oh, yeah, I guess it will, yeah, you know and but you don't know <laughs> until you do it, you know, so it was definitely one of those things and but it was it was done so early that this was the very first sequence that a lot of the animation of of the objects were done, so some of these are the very first scenes that the supervising animators um, were touching of. Cogsworth, Lumiere, Mrs. Potts, and they were kind of cutting their teeth on them, still getting to know them quite a bit. And then the rest of the crew, because it's the it was the only thing in production, the very first sequence, um, it what it meant was, you know, some of these big shots with candlesticks and and beer steins and stuff. That's why I got these little little elements. They would just throw everybody onto the sequence, so you'd get. A candlestick, or you'd get, you know, a beer sign, or you know, this guy would do <laughs> Lumiere over here, and this guy would do. Co- so we were we were separating these scenes. Some of them had eight animators on them, just because they wanted to keep everybody busy and kind of get them uh. ramped up on the production, if you will. But you also see that Belle, uh, the main character Belle, because she was reanimated later, was not done by the supervising animator James Baxter or even Mark Han, who was kind of the secondary, unofficial supervising animator with James, it was all done by some of the lesser Bell animators. So her, to me, I can see it, her quality is not (laughs) nearly as good. Um, Just drawing-wise, performance-wise, he's not as strong. But the the objects all look really strong because they were all done by the main lead supervising animators in this sequence.
2: Wow. That makes so much sense because I always during this song with Belle, I always saw her and I was like, I feel like she just looks a little different, like not significantly that you can. I mean, I guess significant enough that I could tell that something was different, but that's interesting to know that it's because somebody different animated her
1: well and and more so, uh Bell is one of my biggest pet peeves, just between us and your and the <laughs> listeners out there um, <laughs> and not to sound like the bitter old animator guy, but um even at the time when I was a young animator, I I was not happy with all the inconsistencies that I saw in Belle. Usually that's the director's task is to kind of rope in all the animators and say, well, she looks a little bit too different here. Make sure you get some drawings from your supervisor. Go over it. Refine this more. But the directors that we had came from story, not from animation. So mm. they were not they kind of left all that supervising and, and, and pushing uh, to the supervising animators to do. And they were all busy. They were busy with their own work. Right. So there's a lot of inconsistencies inconsistencies in character design and model and, and animation in Beauty and the Beast that I think I can see more than any other animated film that we did in the 90s. To me, it's one of the weakest when it comes to um, drawing consistency. And that usually has to do with, like I said, the director's But Belle in particular is the worst of all the characters in this film. And (laughs) as you watch it. Which is so sad. (laughs) I know. I know it is. But there's, you know, there's just, it's, what's hard is that James Baxter was a phenomenal young, young animator. This was, he went from, you know, animating the cockroaches in Rescuers Down Under, just (sighs) maybe what, one or two films before this to supervising the main character it's because he was a rising wow. star he could draw anything and he drew it well he was just a child prodigy when it came to animation and he was probably only like i want to say he was probably 23 on this wow. film somewhere in there he was very young very wow. young it had never been done before to have uh, such a young supervising animator over a main character on a film and he really rose to the occasion but he also had a back problem that came up on this film, and it took him out of the film for, oh, I don't know, I think he was at home on his in, on bed rest for like six or eight months, something oh my like goodness. that. Oh. Yeah. That's so, like a huge
2: portion of the filming time or the it was. animating time.
1: Yeah, we had, I think it was a little over a year that we did the animation on this film. So for, uh, you know, the supervising animator of a main character to be, out for maybe it was more like four to six months, but it was still, still. a big chunk of time. So that's why I said you know Markhan and other other got, other animators had to kind of rise to the occasion and do more work, which only added to what I said before, which is the inconsistency of the characters because James kind of set the style in the beginning and then was out and then was gone and. Then Mark was doing his version, and there was another animator doing her version, and then the cleanup artist, who's supposed to rein in all those things and kind of make <laughs> everything look more unified, she had she was picks, picking her favorites, and then, uh-huh. like I said, the directors weren't really spearheading that or or getting in the middle of all that, uh, and sad. so what you have is you know three at least three different bells throughout the movie and sometimes she looks like she's you know retaining water she's a little thicker you know and then sometimes she's like ultra thin uh, sometimes she's she looks more like ariel you know all those things <laughs>
2: that's amazing man
1: i'm talking too much you guys no, want to you're get not. into this
2: this is why we wanted you to come on okay so um i had a couple of questions well one was okay Cogsworth has quickly become my favorite character in this whole movie.
1: <laughs> Dude, I heard you say that. That was so nice. I, I heard just, that on minute thirty-nine.
2: I just I just love him. He's so funny, so brilliantly animated. Like so I just kind of was wondering how it works with your animating and working with the voice actor. Like, do they record everything first and then you come in and animate behind, or is it kind of like you go first and how much of what he did influenced what you did?
1: Oh, man, uh, totally, totally influenced. <laughs> I mean, we had a great voice for Coxworth, David Ogden Stiers. He's amazing. Um, yeah, and before this, he was kind of known for MASH. You uh-huh. know? He was yeah. like uh, one of the doctors in that TV show MASH, which is way before your era. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was big on TV, and so he was cast. And, and he had done voiceover work before here and there. And since then, he's done a lot of great voices and other things, too. But Cogsworth was kind of a defining moment for him, and he really got into it, um, and really enjoyed doing this stuffy, you know, butler type (laughs) in the, in the, you know, the, the major domo of the, of the castle. You know, he's the man in charge. So we were deeply influenced by his readings. And yes, the, the dialogue does come first. Um, I think I went to one session, one recording session with David Ogden David Stiers. Usually the supervising animator goes to all of them, uh, and usually by himself. They don't want a big crowd of people in there while the actor's working. So Will Will Finn went to all the sessions and got to know David Ogden Stiers pretty well as a person and hang out with him and stuff, which is cool. But I met him once or twice, I think, while we were working on it, and I think I saw one recording session that, that I was able to sneak into. But yeah, we were more it was just an influence of and what an animator does is when you get your scene the first thing you do is you listen to the dialogue over and over and over and over and over, and over again so I can still to this day remember some of these lines because they were just kind of ingrained into my head um, and, and then we're animating to each little inflection you know one frame at a time and there's 24 frames in a second so you're listening to every little utterance of, of the dialogue and breaking it down to such a way that you, you, know, you know kind of the inflections and the, the rises and falls of the tone and everything. And you're trying to hit those things as an animator. Lip sync is, is an illusion that's gained mostly by, you know, hitting movements with the heads and things like that, as natural as possible. We all do certain things when we talk. You know, usually if your voice goes up, your, your head goes up. And usually if your voice goes down, your your head goes down. Things like that help it to look like it's more in sync with the dialogue, too. And then you are obviously have business to attend to in the scene, you know, where you're actually doing something. Theme, so <laughs> yeah
2: that's amazing
1: anyhow that was yeah that's fun do you guys want to talk about this first shot this is the first cg animation in beating the beast by the way i don't know if you really? realize that and, and uh so we're talking about minute 40 and it starts out with that big CG scene of there's there's All the dishes, cups and
0: plates dancing around.
1: Yeah, and you could kind of tell because they they put too much detail. I mean, they didn't know at the time. They they would just you know um, model out one of these plates or one of these cups, and they had a lot of reflections and a lot of detail. And then they would just reduce it down, reduce it down. Well, nowadays you'd you'd probably simplify the detail as it got smaller. So that it looked accurate to what you would normally see, mm-hmm. but on this, um, you can see there's there's actually almost too much detail on some of these glasses, and it looks it makes it look kind of CG. But yeah, I mean it. So they're dancing on the screen in a very flat way. They would never be able to do that back back at this time without CG. So this was kind of a you know, Be Our Guest is supposed to be a, an homage to a, a Busby, Busby Berkeley type musical, right? And if you know those, which is, you know, from the 40s and 50s, they were always, like, very elaborate musicals and had a lot of elements and a lot of color and very splashy. So um, Beating the Beast was designed to have that look. And it's a shot like this that you could only do in CG that really made this rise in the quality level of that Busby Berkeley kind of thing. And then the next shot, actually, with the candles that look very phallic to me now. <laughs> they... There's something about these candles, though, that we could have never done this shot if it wasn't for the new CAPS system that we were using. And CAPS was our, is called computer-aided ink and paint system, but they called it CAPS. It was developed by Pixar, actually, before Pixar was Pixar, but they were a software company at the time. Mm -hmm. And they developed this, because before Beauty and the Beast, we were painting on cells, right? Well, Rescuers Down Under was the first CAPS ink and painted thing, but Little Mermaid was all painted on cells. The traditional way meaning like you know acetate every frame was one piece of acetate and they actually hand-painted the color on the back of it and Wow. photographed it under the camera. Well, in Rescuers Down Under, we had transitioned to a whole new system that was digital. So we still did the drawings and the animation traditionally with pencil and paper, but we would scan those in and then paint things digitally just like you would now wow. in Photoshop or something like that. So it was like this fancy version of Photoshop that, that Pixar created. And what we discovered on Beauty and the Beast, which we didn't really do much on Rescuers Down Under, is that we could flop a drawing and... So this scene of the candles, where the camera is racing down through the middle of the candles as they're partying to reveal Lumiere at the end, is all because of the cap system. One animator animated one candle, and then mm-hmm. they flopped it and reproduced it and made them smaller so that uh, it gave it that perspective. Whoa. And they basically it's, it was mechanically done, but only one candle was animated. <laughs> That's
2: incredible. You are blowing my mind right now. I never would have guessed.
0: That yeah, I remember as we've been going through the movie, I've seen a few times where people mentioned that Beauty and the Beast was one of the 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 first animated films to use CGI. And I was like, well, I, I didn't remember anything like super CGI besides like the, the last ballroom scene, you know, or not the last scene, but when they're dancing in the ballroom and it kind of swings around, it definitely has a different look to it. Yeah. So it's uh, pretty cool.
1: That's the most famous scene. Yeah, that's the one that people talk about the most is that. Because it was really, the CG was used to help create a whole dynamic with the camera, camera movement that had not been done in animation before. And it was really breathtaking. But the real star of that scene, and I know it's a different minute, so you guys will get into that ballroom sequence later, is James Baxter. He was the one that animated Belle and the Beast in that sequence. And remember I told you he was just a phenomenal talent. Well, nobody else in the studio could have convincingly you know, he had to, if they were small, if the camera was far away, he had to draw those characters small. If the camera turned every frame, he had to move and turn those characters to to match what what the CG background was already doing. Because the oh. CG was done first, <laughs> they created the camera move. And then he had to match every frame with two characters dancing in space and make it look like the perspective was changing, meaning they were growing and shrinking oh or gosh. enlarging and turning at the same time. It's... It looks easy when you see the film, but I can't tell you how, what a difficult job that must have been. And I think only James Baxter could have pulled it off like he did. Which
2: is funny that you mentioned that and how difficult that must have been. But those, that beauty is like probably one of my favorite like versions of her throughout the whole movie. Because there's something so like, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's one of the, where she looks the truest to who she well, is. Well, if I was
1: to sit next to you, Janae, and watch this, the whole movie with you, I could point out, that's James Baxter, that's Mark <laughs> oh Ann, that's gosh. Lorna Cook. I mean, to me, it's, I watch these We're going to hang <laughs> out. Yeah. <laughs> when am I invited over? No.
2: <laughs> so,
1: yeah, I, I like beef stroganoff. We've already set that precedent. I Here can manage jello. that. Okay, okay. And a nice red wine. And, <laughs> <laughs> and a cayente. For me, it's funny, though, because I, I do look at these films, and they're like a yearbook. For us animators that worked on him, I remember, you know, who did what scene, kind of what was going on during each shot that I animated, you know, what was going on in the world, the arguments that I had or the frustrations, you know, I go back there. I don't watch the movie like Uh you guys do. I watch it as, you know, memories and events and people that I worked with. That's so
0: interesting. I never thought about that because I have back in my earlier years, I was in a band. And so, you know, we made songs and I wrote songs. And when I hear them, that same thing happens. You know, I go back to what was going on when we wrote and performed yeah. those. And I never thought about that as, a, as an animator, that that would happen to you watching the movies that you created, so... It's pretty cool
1: yeah it's just a, it's like a it's like just a different kind of visceral event for me because there's these emotions that are attached and it's true music is like that you know visuals and pictures in our mind are like that we go back to that moment when you see like when you see a photograph and stuff you're like boom you're instantly back there when you hear a song boom you're back there and to me these animated uh, movies they have both they have the you know the audio takes me back it's the pictures of what I'm seeing and then I'm then I go past it and I just remember the drawings on my board. I remember, you know, uh, the events and the conversations that we had and, and the fights and <laughs> the good and the bad throughout the whole thing. And that's why I say it's just like a yearbook.
2: Well, do you, I know you didn't animate Lumiere, but do you want to talk for a minute to us about s- some of the things where, like, because these are inanimate objects that are animated and have personalities and move about the animators had to adapt things to be able to create a personality so like here we're coming to like basically a kick line and there's no feet on these like sugar bowls and on lumiere how do animators come up with that stuff
1: It's really trial and error. It's a good question because uh, what you're really speaking to is is kind of the animator's bread and butter. And it's a very big scientific word that I'm going to throw out here, but it's called anthropomorphication. Whoa. (laughs) So we anthropomorphize uh, a character, meaning we give it human attributes. And animators do that all the time. We do that with animals, you mm-hmm. know, Fox and the Hound, mm-hmm. Zootopia. That's anthropomorphication. We anthropomorph sorry, anthropomorphize those characters by giving them human attributes. Um in this case, we do it with objects in this movie. Um and and there's a, a grand history of that even in Walt's Time and the Nine Old Men. They used to do that, you know, Sword in the Stone. There's mm-hmm. like that famous Sugar Bowl or something mm-hmm. that, yeah. that yeah. there's yeah. an interaction with Merlin and stuff. <laughs> And trust me, we, we actually got those. And actually, you kind of see the sugar balls. We kind of stole that little character from um, Sword in the Stone. You can see it behind Lumiere yeah. in this minute 20. See all those sugar balls? Those yeah. are pretty much based on that Sword in the Stone sugar ball because we all had copies of that. So we had a bit of a, a starting off point for how to anthropomorphize some of these these objects because of what had been done in the past, like in Sword in the Stone and other earlier Mickey Mini Minnie Donald shorts. But the you know the trick of it is always how much do you give it human attributes, how much are they still the the teapot or the the candlestick that they actually are, what's rigid, what's hard, what's squashy and stretchy um and that's a matter of kind of trial and error um but some of that is set by, you know, the director's choices of how cartoony is this world, how cartoony is this movie in general. So we know we have a movie that there's, uh, you know, real humans that exist in the movie, Belle and the Beast. So they tend to be on the, every movie has kind of a, uh, a meter, I guess you could say, of realism to cartooniness. And you just have to kind of put all your characters on that, that meter. So mm-hmm. all the way to one side would be Belle. Probably being the most human looking, the most realistic in movement and all that kind of stuff. And then Beast would just be a little bit back uh, away from that a little bit because he's kind of beastly and anthropomorphized and has some Mm -hmm. cartooniness to him, some squash and stretch and things. And then, you know, uh, all the way to the other side would be the objects probably being the most cartoony and LeFou who yeah, I LeFou think is looks
2: super cartoony <laughs> yeah
1: he is way cartoony and actually he does this is another pet peeve of mine just as an aside does not fit in the world with Gaston who's on the meter I know, you know a lot more realistic and drawn oh, okay. more realistically too and yet they gave too. him this sidekick of LeFou who has got these you know this little you know uh, round nose little honker nose and then these round <laughs> eyes that look like Mickey Mouse and I you know uh, he did he doesn't, he doesn't fit in the same world as Gaston, yet they're always in the scenes together. And to me, that's, it's something that's very disturbing for my sensibility.
0: Was that done on purpose or was that just, you know, something that, uh, the, whoever decided what, what LeFou looked like didn't quite well, didn't hit the mark.
1: Unfortunately to me, it goes back to the responsibility of the director. And again, they're the ones that set up those restraints for the animators and for the design sensibility of the film. They are, the, they are the meter. They are the ones that people go to and say, is this right? Do you like this? Do you like this? Yes, yes. No, no. Yes, yes. Whatever. But they set that determination. And so when they approved, what they did wrong, probably, <laughs> if I could be so bold, is to say that they approved these, these two characters in a vacuum. They didn't really oh. consider how they would look together, or they didn't care, one or the other, mm-hmm. and they felt like it was okay. Now, um, my sensibility is that it's not okay and i would have changed it and what what i would have done was i would have changed the food to be on the on the meter a yeah. lot closer to realistic and i would have changed mm-hmm. his design early on and that would have solved the problem but you know they they let the supervising animators go and when you have a pack of you know seven or eight supervising animators that are in charge of their specific character that's all they care about so right. it's the director's job to really kind of you know rustle those cats a little bit to say okay we're going this way and you need to do this, and oh, Lufu, Lufu guy, you got to come in this way a little bit more towards the realism, and you know um, to
2: unify everybody. I mean, that's right. what directors do: They unify everybody so everybody has the same vision of exactly. the end result. I know they put a lot I've I've watched some interviews where they've talked about putting a lot of effort and energy into getting Gaston exactly the way the directors wanted them him so that they could make a point with his character being like super handsome and looking on the outside the opposite of beast being handsome and the beast is scary and ugly but right. and then but on the inside they're swapped as well yeah. But yeah, I guess I haven't really ever heard anything in any intervi- interviews about LeFou. That's interesting. And you probably <laughs>
1: won't. I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe it's my own pet peeve. But I, I do think that for whatever reason, people notice that. They just may not subconsciously think about it. But it is something that. Um, was I was very conscious of when we were working on the film, and like I said, I was a junior animator. Yeah. what was I going to do what was i going to say <laughs> you know? i right, right. 'm I'm just i 'm hoping <laughs> to get promoted and get better scenes myself <laughs> But, you know, in retrospect, I've done a lot of thinking about these films over the years and I've gotten into directing myself and I understand the responsibility of a director. And having had that responsibility on Mulan, it, it really shaped me. All the directors I worked with from seeing their strong points and their weak points helped me to become the director that I was on Mulan. So I- yes. Which was an
2: amazing one, by the way. <laughs> oh,
1: well, <laughs> thank you. We'll do a minute, minute by minute in Mulan later. Yeah,
2: I told my roommate, I was like, yeah, Tony Bancroft. Is coming on, and he did this and this and this. And she was like, Oh my gosh, I love him! I love Mulan, so it means I love him because he did Mulan. <laughs> it's like, Yes, does she make the <laughs> Stroganoff? That's all I have to know. I'm pretty sure she does. Okay. She makes Tell everything. her. I'm married, it's my anniversary,
1: so I have to throw that out. I'm married. Sorry,
2: uh, that is so funny, <laughs> uh, but yeah. We love Mulan.
1: We're not doing too well in our minute here, <laughs> no. are
2: we? No. Okay, so one of my next things about the minute is you guys did amazing at just creating this grandiose, huge, like, vision, like, tableau of these cakes and, like, all of the dishes on top of the cakes and the chandelier, which, by the way, are they in the ballroom, the same ballroom that the dance scene happens in? Because this looks like the same chandelier.
1: Mm. That, uh, that's a good question. I didn't even think um, of that until
2: just now. And I'm like, that looks strikingly similar to the one in the... I don't
1: <laughs> think we know, to tell you the truth. <gasps> okay. And I don't know if it was ever discussed, because the castle has an undetermined amount of rooms. <laughs> 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 like, I don't think I ever saw, uh-huh. while working on the movie, a map of the castle oh, that really, you know, they just created an outside you know exterior detail of the castle and then mm-hmm. and then just made rooms you know there was just designs of this is the library and this is the ballroom and oh we're gonna have the staircase for this one scene so we need a staircase literally you're just kind of creating what you need based on the script That's and, and what, it, what it calls for but yeah we'll say that this is the ballroom <laughs> and except is for I same. just
2: realized it can't be the same as the ballroom unless it has a fireplace because it's the same room that the beast was in earlier with that yeah. huge fireplace that he's pacing in so it's yeah. a dining room they must have more than one chandelier yeah, i don't think the that's floor all.
1: matches up oh i think there's plenty of chandeliers. <laughs> and and this was like one of the second cg scenes too um these these forks that we yes. see on the side oh, of the, the chandelier tines, with the tines the that are kick line the kicked kick line that's all cg they kind of look cg i mean there's no expression yeah. change on them it's kind of painted onto them and then the, the chandelier yeah. itself is cg too
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask because this is something that's come up a lot. And uh, definitely one of the things that's that's bothered <laughs> me trying to figure out this movie, like in, in the movie world, we're all... What's the gray stuff?
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's the gray stuff? It's, it's delicious. delicious. That's all you
0: need to know. With all the objects, are they all supposed to be people that are turned into objects or are some of the objects just objects that are moving around because it's magic
1: oh that's a good question we've had many a debate
2: about this (laughs) at
1: the end of the movie you only see certain characters the main ones the main objects that we know Mm -hmm. turn human but do all these things turn human we never address that in the movie. Um, we know. And we never. I'm sure the story people talked about that because usually you're working on these for so long that somebody's going to ask that question sooner or later. I'm sure it was discussed. I never heard what the director's philosophy was about that, and I don't. I don't know that anybody cares. Or, at some point, except
2: for Bobby, except for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, fans care. That's the funny thing is that ca- fans care so much more than the filmmakers ever did, and which is which is usually the way, right? I mean, you yeah. guys get into the minutiae but you know for us we we just kind of said well it's an enchanted castle so <laughs> enchantment can mean a lot of things and so yeah it could be objects that are brought to life and it could be some that are humans that were transferred into being objects you know um, so I would think that it's a little bit of both to tell you the <laughs> truth but I have never heard the official company line on that
0: okay well our working theory is that if if the object has a face on it then it was a person and a if it does. So, yeah. so, the spoons aren't people but so forks are. Yeah. I
2: don't completely I I don't completely buy yeah. the theory. I mean, I know Bobby does, but <laughs> I...
1: Well, there's that big, you know, ballroom scene at the very end of the movie, which uh, a little side note of trivia.
2: There's a bunch of people there that it's like where did they come from? There's a bunch of people.
1: Right. And, and they're all they? just watching. Yeah. Well, they're from Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> 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 That's a scene that was taken out of Sleeping Beauty and actually the animation the animation was just redrawn over That's from so the actual animation of uh, Sleeping Beauty and the prince right, dancing right. at the end of the movie. Uh, Did you all do that because you that. just
2: ran out of time?
1: It was both. It was probably a little bit of an homage, but also like, hey, we can have a time savings here. <laughs> and wouldn't it be kind of fun to, to be able to kind of show that same scene from the same angle as Sleeping Beauty? And yeah, uh, it was both. I think it was both. Cool.
0: Yeah, that explains a lot because I knew, I knew like the dancing sequence was from Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. But when I went and looked at those characters a few days ago, I was like, well, they look like they're dressed a lot differently than everybody else in the movie. So. That makes, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. One thing that I always disliked, I'm looking at the the, the minute mm-hmm. right here, is that we have that in the background of some of these shots as Lumiere is singing. Um, you know, we cut to the, the chandelier and then you see just going through the shot is this uh, candle with some, some spoons on it that's flying through past the right. chandelier and stuff. Oh, and then we cut to the, the forks doing their, their kick line, and it, and it goes by again. But then we cut to the long shot, and I always wanted that thing to fly through in the long shot to be <laughs> consistent. And it would have added so much to it. Yeah. I, I don't know if they just forgot or it, if been it so was... That so
2: funny. I love cogsworth here with he like finally gets into it and his tongue is like flying around yeah he just looks so goofy and then that's mike's show whoa the animation i paused right on this second of this animation that looks so different
1: Oh that's that is my beer signs. Oh my gosh, I was just looking at I think I did those beer signs. Wait, let me look. I have to yeah, like snap second 37. This. It's so, yeah, it's so quick. No, no, that's not
0: right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, I didn't do and that then angle. you see but after he gets pushed off and you get this kind of like bigger picture of Everyone's standing there, you can see Cogsworth flat on his face to the side on the table. It's so funny. Oh, yeah.
1: I never noticed that. (laughs) Right before (laughs) it zooms
2: out to see, like, all of the carts and the pails and the. I mean, if those are inanimate objects, I don't see why they would be standing there for the finale. I feel like (laughs) they're people.
1: Oh, I hate the bell scene right after that. Sorry. But this Cogsworth scene after the Bell scene... Cogsworth scene is, scene is this,
2: brilliant.
1: This is Will Finn. Now, this is the supervising animator, Will Finn. Um, the other two shots that you liked of Cogsworth were Mike show, who was, like me, in the, he uh, was an animator in, in the Cogsworth unit. But this is Will Finn doing what Will Finn does well. And he's got, like, the main scene. I love how he opens his little chest To fix uh, his chest tie thing, and, thing and, that's and a not chest, a tie. Yeah. And I don't think that was in the storyboards. Oh, I, I think it. that's pure Will Finn. I think he came up with that little idea. Those are the things that... Add a lot of character and charm yeah. to a scene that an animator, you know, <laughs> that's where they earn their bread and butter Our little moments like that.
2: And he does this little like clap Ooh. thing. Yeah. Like, look at
1: the time. I love that. I look love what the he time.
2: points right to his face. Look he at the time. Was, uh,
1: Will did a lot of research at the time that he was working on Cogsworth into Alice in Wonderland. So there's oh. a lot of influence from Alice in Wonderland and things and movies like that into uh, Cogsworth. You know, some of the animals and objects and weird things in Alice in Alice. I can Wonderland. see yeah,
0: that actually. Cogsworth kind of has like a Cheshire cat shaped mouth. Yeah, right.
2: I. Also, this isn't in this minute, but another thing I love about Cogsworth, which I've mentioned before. So sorry everybody else who's already heard this, but I love when his little like toupee thing will like fly off his head when he jumps down from somewhere or like yeah. something like that. I think it's so funny. Uh,
1: yeah, I love that too. I love his design. I'm I'm always amazed that um, those those feet though were really hard oh. to, to. I
2: love his feet. <laughs>
1: I remember I weird? had a shot where Cogsworth was running after Beast, and Beast is cooking, and Cogsworth is so small. And I'm like, I, I remember going to Will, going, "How the <laughs> heck do I get Cogsworth up those stairs that quick yeah. with these with these feet that aren't even feet? They're just and and do they turn? Do they pivot? And he's like, "Just give it a try," <laughs> you know. <laughs>
2: They kind of turn out... Do
1: what works. Wiggling
2: around, kind of like spidery legs or something.
1: Yeah, his whole base has to pivot, and that's what we kind of came up with. But it's totally a cheat, you know? It's Yeah. There's there's no... Well, you have to. Well, and and you can see in this shot, too, where he's like... Uh, off to bed, off to bed, or whatever, the, the wide shot with Cogsworth. He's just sliding on the floor. Um, there's a lot of sliding. Oh, yeah. He's not he's <gasps> not really taking what? steps at all. I
2: didn't even notice that.
1: And and that's because I don't think Will had really figured out how he wanted <laughs> to make him have what? steps.
2: Well, it totally works though, because it kinda just looks like he's since he's like bowing and stuff as he moves.
1: It's a little Michael Jackson. It's kind of a yeah. little bit of a moonwalk kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That is and then this
1: cool. last shot of Cogsworth, I think that's one of the only times that you see that crank that he has on the back of his head. I know Maurice turns that yeah. at one point, so it's, it is a story point, yeah. but there's a lot of shots that we just forgot to put <laughs> that in or... <laughs> I don't even know if it was on the model sheet, to tell you the truth. So if it wasn't on the model sheet, a lot of times it just didn't end up in the scenes.
2: That's so funny.
1: But you don't see him from behind very much. Anyway, I didn't even know. To tell you the truth, I didn't know how his wig uh, really worked from behind.
2: Okay, here's a question. When you were animating him, did you know what he would look like as a person from the very beginning? Or no. did you just animate him as a clock and then you're like, oh, we better figure out what he's going to look like as a person.
1: Yeah, those human designs did not come until the very end of the movie just like they do in the movie. The supervising animators were asked to make human versions. Huh. And I think it was good that they were designed so late in the game because that by that point, you know, Nick Ranieri, the supervising animator, Lumiere and Wilfin and Cogsworth and David Proxma, who's the supervising animator, and Mrs. Potts. They knew their characters so well right. as objects. Mm. Then it was like, okay, now I can translate them into human. What would that look like? Whereas if they tried to come up with those designs way early on when they were still trying to figure out the object version, it might have been harder for them. So they, it was kind of a more of a natural you know, a progression for them, I think. Right. But yeah, we had no idea what they looked like until... Will Finn and those supervising animators created the design, which was like in the last I don't know three months of the movie, probably.
2: Um, here's another question. Can I just keep asking you questions? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, It's better
1: than dead air. Do
2: you have a favorite character over the years that you've animated?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of tough. I mean, you know, it sounds corny, but it is like picking your favorite kid, right? Um, so but, um, Pumbaa was particularly. Uh, one of my favorites, he was the first, that was the first time I was a supervising animator on a film, was The Lion King. And I had the character Pumbaa the Warthog and created the model sheets and everything and did the main scenes of him. And that was a great opportunity for me. I just, I loved it. Plus I was, best. my best friend was Mike Suri who did uh, Timon.
0: Mm-hmm. And on Beauty
1: and the Beast, Mike did um, Lumiere. So we are, oh, we wow. had gone from <laughs> sharing an office and doing Cogsworth and Lumiere to sharing an office and doing Pumbaa and Timon. Oh, fun. And so our relationship grew just like the characters that we were doing. So it was really cool. It's hard for me not to look at Lion King and say that was definitely probably the, the best time I had as an animator. And then Mulan as a director, of course, was right. um, probably one of my favorite films to work on for many reasons. Okay.
2: Do we have any other notes about this minute?
0: I think the, the last thing that I have... Is just that we finally get to uh, see that his clock hands actually can function when he wants them to. And He says, "Look at yeah. the time," and it looks to me like it's like nine twenty-five. So it actually is getting a little late.
2: That's funny. Look at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he intentionally changes the time. You're right, uh, and, and that's a very subtle thing. It's you got a good eye there because Will Will specifically did that on purpose. That the hands yeah. switch and creates yeah nine. 925, yeah, which actually doesn't help his dialogue at all because, you know, we, one of the challenges we had with Cogsworth was usually the hands uh, just responded to the movement of his head or something like that. Kind of like acted we, as a mustache. Kinda, as a mustache, right. And so, but we tried to keep them out of the way of the mouth so that they wouldn't overlap too much and, and become confusing. But when he changes the time, he's definitely got a hand that's hanging right over the mouth for a lot of that. Which means it was a hassle for ink and paint later because it just means there's more shapes that they got to paint around <laughs> everything has a production uh you know uh costs later on
0: that's so weird those are the little things that even going through this minute by minute never occurred to me like oh you know they did this because it's going to cost so many man hours to to create you know whatever the effect is later on to make it work right mm. and there's just so much detail in this movie like uh, we just keep gushing over it uh, every few episodes and be like wow there's just so much detail in the animation so much time was put into to make it look realistic even though you know it's an animation cartoon to make you feel like it's a real place and that uh, you are there with the characters.
1: Well, along the lines of that, and, and speaking to Cogsworth again, his, what's that thing that's in his chest that goes Pendulum. back and forth? Pendulum? Thank you. Pendulum. It was decided early on that to make him look alive, we need to have that pendulum going back and forth all the time. And we even talked about and discussed what the tempo of that was. And would it get faster if he got more excited? And oh I think we determined that it shouldn't. That it should just be a consistent, you know, certain amount of frames. You know, 12 frames, 12 frames, something like that. Every half second going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some scenes that, like even this scene where that we were just talking about that Will Finn animated, that I see that he was not consistent with it. But then the next shot, the close up he is and it's going back and forth the whole time as he's saying, Look at the time, look at the time, off to bed, off to bed. But the shot right before that, he forgot to do the pendulum and it looks like it's huh? just reacting to his body movement. Huh. But yeah, the, the dancing scene that you you were saying that Mike Show did with his with when he's really into the song at the end, the pendulum is going back and forth in a very consistent manner. Huh. I think I probably dropped the ball on that more than those other two animators though. And I don't know that I always animated it back and forth. <laughs> So there's probably inconsistencies throughout the, the movie, but it was, that was one of those, you know, it, it was definitely a production value thing and it was a choice that was, that was decided early on. I remember having a meeting just to talk about the pendulum, you know, and we decided we we're going to try and keep that moving so that it was part of his life. You know, you knew he was alive because his pendulum was constantly yeah.
0: going. That's so cool. So, are there like specific scenes that you worked on Cogsworth in the movie or did you just kind of do small parts of of the whole thing?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, there's 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 certain scenes. I didn't do because I was a new animator on this and also an animating assistant before I became an animator. I don't I got mostly piecemeal scenes like one shot here, one shot there. I didn't have a whole sequence. Mm-hmm that i can think of or even a lot of continuity there might have been a couple shots that i had in continuity meaning they you know from one cut to the next i did this the characters in both the cuts that's always the the mission that's always the goal of the animator is to have continuity because then you can really develop a performance over time a little bit more mm-hmm. when you only have one shot you, you're kind of it's too much of a restraint you know you can't go anywhere yeah. with it but if you could plan out three or four shots then you can really kind of get a bigger fuller scope of the character but yeah in this this film it was more shot to shot but i i did um i did the scene where when beast first comes in you've already talked about it i'm sure when beast first comes in and is really upset that bell's in the castle and cogsworth is under the rug he's t- <laughs> hiding he's hiding under the rug i
2: remember that
1: yeah oh when i got that scene that was that was my biggest shot of and and a close-up, you know, single character shot of Cogsworth, that was that was the, the cake. That was, like, the biggest moment for me on that film was getting that shot. I was so nervous about what to do with that and would I do it well and just a lot of anxieties, I remember, surrounding that shot. I was happy with how it came out, so I'm still pretty proud of that shot. I have it in my reel, so I guess it's worth
2: it. <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's all I have for this minute. Uh Janine?
2: Yeah, I just had one final question. I have a friend who is going to school to be an animator. And I was just wondering if you had any advice for aspiring animators.
1: What school is this friend going to? You she's
2: know? going to University of Texas, Dallas. All right. UTD. Well, and
1: they have an animation program there?
2: I guess. I
0: don't
1: know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't go there. She just told okay. me she's studying animation, so...
1: Oh, good. Well, then let's assume they do. Yeah. So, first of all, I always tell people you know, you're in it. You're, you're, a degree doesn't mean anything in the world of animation, unfortunately. I I know our parents would like (laughs) us to go all four years and get a degree. And I hate to say this for all the parents because I'm a parent now too. But the reality is, is that in in the arts, in the creative Uh world of writing and drawing and and painting and all that, that the degree doesn't mean as much as your skill set and your ability and your potential. So, a portfolio is the thing that you're really building and the reason you go to school is to learn and grow so that you can put that work together in a portfolio and get a job. Mm-hmm. And and one of the hardest things for students um, because they're so excited about learning is that they don't always look at going to the right college that will get them the job ultimately or help them get the job. Now, no college can can tell a student, "Oh yeah, we guarantee, you know, 100% of our students get jobs as they come out of here." But you should these days with the amount Uh, that schools cost and colleges if you're not going to go the cheaper route of just going online schooling and you're really going to a brick and mortar school Mm -hmm. then you have to really ask the right questions up front does the school have connections in the industry do they have like what's called a producer show where at the end of the you know three years or four years they or or at the end of every year do they have a screening of the students works and then invite producers from the studios to come see and a lot of the studios out here in California do that because they can They're they're near the entertainment industry, so they invite executives, directors, producers from the industry to come to their shows, and they see exclusively the work of the students and then people get hired mm-hmm. out of that students get jobs wow. and if they don't have the ability to do that are they doing other things or making other connections like you know field trips to california where they can take you know studio tours or something like that mm-hmm. and if this if the school isn't trying to help these kids one build their portfolio and two try and get help them get out there with their portfolio and their work and give them those the, that leg up and I don't think they're really fully doing their job as a school. Right. That's my personal opinion as a father and as an animator.
2: Because
1: <laughs> I just I, I feel for the students these days. Yeah. I feel for kids that they get so enticed by animation and excited by it, and they just they don't do the proper research. And there's really no reason for it because the internet is with you. Where I didn't have it when I was a kid, and you can do all kinds of research into right. schools and colleges. And, and even the biggest debate, which is, do I need to go to a brick and mortar mm-hmm. school or should I go with online schooling mm-hmm. or be self-educated and what, what really matters in the long? You know, the long road of getting employment and working in the industry. What do I want to do? Do I want to work for a big studio or do I want to do my own personal work and what do I need to do that? So those kind of forward thinking thoughts are really key for anybody going into this profession because it's not easy. It's a very competitive profession and your work is only your work is what's going to open the doors that and relationships. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing I don't. I stress all the time is you've got to know people. you got to get out there, meet professionals in the industry, make connections and relationship is, is really what it's about. And if you're just that quiet, shy girl guy, you know, working in the basement or, or working in your bedroom all the time, and that's how you prefer it, you're going to have a really tough time <sighs> mm. working in animation right. because it's a team sport. Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: I was listening to uh, your podcast episode, the most recent one, yesterday with Alex Hirsch. Oh, yeah. And uh, for all of you, those listening, Tony has a podcast, the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast.
1: Yeah, it's something I, my twin brother and I do. My brother, Tom, we didn't talk about him Harley at all, which is good, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> but, but Tom was also an animator at Disney. He animated, uh, he was a supervising animator of Mushu um, in Mulan and... Did a bunch of characters, and we both were at Disney at the same time. So we put together this podcast, and we've been doing it for two and a half years, and we have celebrity guests on all the time, directors, producers, artists, character designers, you name it. We have them on, and just like this podcast, we just have fun talking about animation.
0: Yeah, I definitely recommend listening to it. Those interviews are amazing. But the one I was listening to yesterday kind of got me thinking, have you seen a trend, uh, I guess kind of in the last few years, of people moving away from I guess the big goal for someone as an animation student, as an animator was probably to work for one of the large studios in the past. Is that changing more to doing stuff on their own in smaller projects and like YouTube shows?
1: Um, A little bit, but it's amazing how many students, the ones that contact me all have goals of getting you know basically going the same route that i that i went oh i want to work for disney and i want to be an animator and do 2d animation and it's like what world are you living in <laughs> <laughs> i cannot believe that in today's world you're studying to be a 2d animator at disney that doesn't it's not even happening there yeah. so <laughs> you know what first of all please 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 go outside of your bedroom and I want you to look at the world and where it's at right now and work towards that (laughs) because that's the reality. And, um, so, but I'm just amazed sometimes at some of the students and the kids and where their heads are. I love, part of me loves it. I mean, I love the fact that there's so many young kids that want to know 2D animation and they're studying it and they're, they're refusing to get on the computer (laughs) and stuff like that. (laughs) <laughs> but the father in me is saying, no, you've got to wake up, learn. It's great. Learn 2D animation, but also learn CG animation. Learn the computer systems. Get into that because that's where your jobs are mm-hmm. going to be. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to pay the bills. Yeah. You could do a little short film on the side or a YouTube thing because most likely, let's face it, that's probably what's going to happen is that, yeah, there are different avenues, YouTube and other places to do your own little experimental things or funny little pieces. But it's probably not going to pay the bills, not for a long time mm-hmm. anyway. Way. So oh, the get arts. the day job. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Most things in the arts world are like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, how are you guys doing? You making money off this podcast? I, Tom and I we barely make a dime. <laughs> yeah, it's a labor of love. It and is. you know what? We we all need that. But it's also a side thing that you do. It can't be your main thing. So uh, I always tell students, you know, do what you love, but make money at something no matter mm-hmm. what.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, Janae, if you don't have any more questions, I think uh, probably uh, about clears up our time.
2: Yeah. I I mean.
0: Dude, we went over an hour. <laughs> we, we rocked yes. this. Welcome
2: to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: BBM forty
2: nailed down. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it and have had a blast.
1: It was it was uh, an honor to talk to you guys, and I love what you're doing. I told you this off air, but I'm going to say it officially. It's awesome. And for all those listening to, I wanted to throw out: I'm on Instagram at Pumbaguy, and Pumba has two A's. Everybody always changed it for some reason to one A. It doesn't have one A. Pumba
0: <laughs> two A's.
1: Pumbaguy because uh, I did Pumba mm. guy, And then on Twitter, I'm guy one Reach out to me, join me, follow me, like me. I love all that. It makes me feel good and my head expands. <laughs> but thank you, Janae, Bobby. You guys are wonderful. I love what you're doing. And I can't wait till you get to minute, I don't know, what, 82, 83, where you're just talking over the credits? I think that's going
0: to be 87 oh, for us.
1: 87. Okay, that'll, that's when I'm going to tune in again. I want to hear what you say about the credit roll. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. Thank you again for joining us. If anybody wants to get a hold of him, like I said, find him on Twitter, Instagram. He's very active on those avenues. Check out their podcast for sure. And if you need to get a hold of us, as always, we are on Facebook and Twitter at Beastly Minute, or you can head over to growlermedia.com, where this podcast lives, along with some of the other podcasts that I work on over there. And Janae, how can people get a hold of you if they want to do that?
2: You can find my voiceover portfolio on my new website, JanaeHyatt.com. J-A-N-A-Y-H-I-A-T-T. Pretty simple. So that's all.
1: How do you spell Hyatt? I'm looking that up now.
2: H-I-A-T-T.
1: H-I-A-T-T. It's
2: brand new.
1: Dot com. I can't wait. I'm gonna check that out tonight.
2: <laughs> Thanks. I oh, there you are.
1: It. Look, there's a there's a big old a picture. a big old, old picture.
2: I know. Oh I, my gosh. I like have to replace that because my brother-in-law put it there because he made my thing for me, and I'm like, I just do not like my face being that big. And
1: you got kind of a, a like a knowing smirk, smirk there too. <laughs> I know, yeah. smirky. A bit of a smolder, a bit of a smirk. <laughs> it says, "I'm Jay, and I can see right through you."
2: You want me to voice your name
1: <laughs> Yeah.
2: Awesome. So give it a listen. Let me know what you think.
1: All right, you got it. Thanks guys. Have an awesome day. You too. Thanks.
0: Thank you for coming on.
1: I got like booger what we call boogermation. Okay, tell her I'm married. It's my anniversary. So I have to throw that out. I'm married. Just give it a try. <laughs> you know. <laughs> do it. Do it works, you know. A bit of a smolder, a bit of a smirk. Look at the time. Look at the time. Off to bed. Off to bed. I'm keeping your bones.